0: So, Colin, in any industry, especially in our industry, one has to have an entrepreneurial mindset. But the challenge is this. In most clubs, it's not that my fellow club managers lack imagination innovation. They are pretty bright folks. It's through no fault of their own. The challenge is is that we work in an environment where we change boards very frequently, presidents every year, two years. And the fear The fear of failure in most clubs is so high that it prevents the management team from experimenting and innovating because the tolerance for failure is very small. And fortunately for us at Medina, we have educated and we have the support of the board in that I have a pretty large safety net so, for as many ideas we have tried that have succeeded, equal amount have failed. But you know what? It's okay. We want our team and our employees to think outside the box because, again, just like I have a safety net, I provide them with a safety net as well.
1: Hey, everyone! Welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast, where we speak with the influencers, disruptors, entrepreneurs, and innovators who are shaping the future of golf. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. If you're new to the Mod Golf Podcast, thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host, Colin Weston, and today my guest is Robert Cerechi, who is general manager and COO at Medina Country Club, which is located 30 minutes west of Chicago. Hired at Medina in 2015, Robert is a strong collaborator and team builder and has worked to strengthen and empower Medina's brand. In 2016, Robert worked with his board, management, and membership to roll out Medina 2020, which we're going to hear a lot about today, which is a comprehensive $25 million phased club improvement plan. All these investments will move Medina Country Club into a more modern era of membership enhancements and strengthens its community. Prior to Medina Country Club, Robert was GM of the American Club in Hong Kong, which is a 3,000-member club founded in 1925. Robert has also been CEO of Northwood Club in Dallas, and Ghilardia Country Club in Oklahoma City. And he's actually bounced around the country and actually worked at many other uh, golf and country clubs also. In addition to be a certified club manager, Robert holds a degree in hotel and restaurant management from Cal Poly Panoma and an MBA from Georgia State University. And what I find fascinating, Robert is now our second guest in over 80 episodes who doesn't play golf, which I think is part of his secret sauces, superpower and insights into what he's doing uh, at Medina. So we're going to get into that, too. I stumbled upon uh, Robert on LinkedIn, actually, where I saw him pop up as a keynote speaker for the upcoming World Golf Expo 2021 uh, with the theme, the spark of innovation. So, once I w- read words in Robert's bio about innovation, inspiration, culture change in golf, I knew I had to connect with him and invite him on the Mod Golf Podcast as a guest. And ta da, here he is today. He's taken the time out of his busy schedule to join us. So, with that, Robert, thanks so much for joining me today, and welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast. Thank you, Colin. Thank you for the invite. Absolutely. So before we go back to your your previous experience, let's say in Hong Kong and beyond that, let's start when you first arrived in 2015 at Medina. And even the hiring process of you being vetted and working through that, working towards this Medina 2020 plan. Today, the themes of change and and innovation, easy to say, but hard to do. I'd really love you to start there with your story, Robert.
0: Colin, you know, what's interesting is I don't think anyone would have ever imagined that we would use Medina and the word innovation in the same sentence. Hmm. But I have to tell you that five years later, that's exactly where we are in that our second reiteration of our strategic plans tagline literally is about innovation. I have to credit uh, much of our innovative ideas to the success that we experienced in the last couple of years. Yes, Medina is a very, recognizable. I think we are the sixth most iconic clubhouse on the planet, a brand known worldwide, a rich, rich history with golf and tournaments, which we're extremely proud of. But the challenge was that the club disproportionately relied on its golf offering to attract memberships. And little by little, the club continued to experience a small decline in membership, Right after starting with the Ryder Cup and for multiple reasons, right, the membership could not keep up and uh, the numbers were dwindling slowly. And after many years of this, the club decided to engage a firm to assist them and global golf partners is a Canadian-American strategic planning consulting firm, and they are the one that conducted the search and hired me. And I have to tell you that had it not been for the consultants who see Medina in a very different lens, who have known Medina for many years, I don't know as a non-golfer, I don't think I would have been hired had it not been for them to educate the search committee in understanding that the skill set required to run an organization of 20 some odd million is vastly different from what most search committees think it is. And for some reason, there is automatically a default position of someone who loves the games, passionate about the game, plays the game is a big requirement. And ironically, I have to be honest with you, as a non-golfer, And as a someone who does not have an emotional attachment at the time to the club or tournaments, I was able to see Medina in a very, very neutral lens. And that is one of the reasons why I think we've been successful is because I don't wear the golf colored rosy glasses as I see all the challenges. So I think one of the reasons is that I'm able to see Medina in a very different light from what I think the average person sees.
1: I find this very interesting. With the other work that I've done over the last few years in the sport innovation and entertainment sector, I have seen that also, not just in golf, but other sports and surfing, for example, that we worked in that you get these hardcore surfers and it's all about the perfect wave rather than the business of growing the sport and the hospitality aspect around that. I make this joke of saying ignorance is one of my superpowers. In fact, I don't know these things. I'm not in the golf box, so I don't have to extract myself from that. So it sounds like you and I are cut from the same cloth <laughs> with that. You went in the hospitality background, myself in the architectural design background. that <laughs> We don't have to, like I said, don't have to extract ourselves from that because we're not so close in it that you can't move yourself out of that. So, so let's dig into this a little bit more, Robert. So what was revealed then in 2015 as far as this action plan, as far as what were the pain And sure, it sounds like membership was on the decline. What was revealed of the customer refusal, if you will, or lapsing or just leaving and not backfilling? So what did you find? Because I'm sure that also that technology and innovation is a piece to actually make change and innovation, but it's not ultimately the piece that's going to make that happen. So can you talk about that a little bit, about what was revealed there in the early work that you did of what was going wrong and what needed to be changed and and what was your plan to roll out over time to mitigate that? Well,
0: the club with an incredible history. Be it golf or just club history, had everything in its possession to be a very successful club. The challenge is: you have to decide in a club how do you keep score. What is the scorecard for a successful club? And many clubs, not just Medina, many clubs, especially those that are very golf-centric, even those that are not, disproportionately rely on their history, on their past history, as a value proposition to attract new members. And that's not unusual. If you have a grandmother that sells her house and she thinks her house is beautiful and the prospective buyers walk in, look at it and say, good God, what is this? But yet grandma or mom is tearing up because there's a candy drawer, the wallpaper, and we fail to see the house. Because we are so emotionally attached and we cannot see what's in front of us. Clubs are the same. Medina is all of the members, not wrongfully and rightfully so, care deeply for the club, but they disproportionately relied on the history. And when I did my homework as an MBA, you know, when you do your homework and you look at strategies, it was very simple to me. And strategic planning is not that complicated in private clubs. For me, it was very simple. The club was founded in the early 20s as a getaway from the city for individuals to escape the city, come to Medina, again, as you said, we're 30 minutes away, to have an oasis away from the city where families congregated in the 20s and 30s, and they had horseback riding, shooting, sledding. We had a luge, ski jumping, and golf, name it. And over time, that was the real reason. It was a community of people to get together and spend quality time. We had overnight rooms on two floors, and they spent the entire weekend. However, like most clubs, that purpose for being changed over time. And I think Medina, you know, we hosted a few tournaments in the 40s and 70s and 80s, and we got really in love and enamored with the golf phenomenon, right? And it's really addicting. It, it's something that it gives you a high that you are, when you're a recognized brand all over the world for golf and tournaments, and then you wonder why people are not joining. I mean, how does that happen? And people were scratching their heads and you're trying everything you can. And as a non-golfer, to me, it was very simple. The value proposition in today's market for those individuals or families interested in looking to join a club has drastically changed. People are no longer looking for only golf venues, but what they are looking for is a community where they can belong with like-minded people. So what we were doing, we were focusing on the externalities, right, on our golf to disproportionately carry the day and bring people in. So when prospective members came, we would talk about the Ryder Cup and the US Open and Sergio's famous shot. What we didn't realize, what the club did not realize, is that the men were already sold as they were driving through the gate. And literally, Colin, you can see men tearing up as they drive through the gate. They come through the front, they see this beautiful rotunda And they're just so emotional, right? I mean, it's like coming to the promised land. But the challenge was mama was not very impressed the spouses were looking at their watches. So what we did is we kept selling to the very people that were already sold, not realizing that in today's market, the spouse has an equal, if not greater say in where people join, where the family will join. So what we did is I created a white paper and wrote something for the board to consider in that what we have to do is in addition to golf, by the way, golf is in our DNA, tournaments in our DNA we are so proud of what we've accomplished with all the tournaments now and in the future, but that was just simply not enough and what what I said is we have to focus on community building. And to do that, we have to invest dollars in our house because if we get the spaces and places correct, we will create community. And we are very we were very deliberate in what we designed how we structured our spaces in order to have our members spend more time together, build relationships. And it was a little risky, I can assure you of that, but it worked. What we did is we created and updated certain uh, areas of the club that are more modernized. We introduced elements and amenities that we never had. We did have three tennis courts, but they were concrete, and we had uh, vegetation growing out of the concrete. Now we have four wonderful hard courts. We have four platform tennis courts, a racket center, which is a warming hut, a five-bay golf learning center. We completely updated our restaurants, our bars to be more modernized, but yet still more intimate. And in the process, we spent roughly $30 million on taking care of our house in building this community. And we worked really hard on our scripts to ensure that we're all saying the same thing but I have to be honest with you, the word community was kind of hard for people to say. I got criticized uh, at the beginning for using the C word. I mean, really? Yeah, community, Where
1: golf. See, I, I find this really interesting. The, the, the work that you did, I'm sure you had to build consensus with the board and management and even with membership, which is not easy to do. So obviously, you're quite good with the soft skills, Robert, because that is not easy in order to bring everybody on board and get enough consensus for the opportunity to then put in place cultural transformation and community building here. <laughs> in fact, you so said the, the, the C were, word was frowned upon or they didn't want, want to talk about that. So I find, was, I find that very interesting.
0: But Colin, what people I think, or whether it's in the corporate world, especially in the club world, when it comes to innovation, When it comes to developing a strategy for a private club is really not that hard. It really isn't. It's pretty much 80% of the strategic actions applied to probably 80% of the clubs. Innovation in private clubs, it's not that difficult. It really isn't. We have always been behind the curve. What is considered innovative in our space has been around for, I hate to say decades, in the outside world. So the challenge is not so much about what The challenge is how do you get people to move in a certain direction, in a direction that the leader desires? And in order to get people to buy in your board and your membership, it is all about establishing trust. And you do that by working and developing your why. So telling people that you need to do this is very different than explaining to them, why do you need this? So now, I have to tell you that there are certain times where we ask for forgiveness and not for permission. Right. And the chicken coop was a good example, right? You know, that was, uh, let's see, on my, I think I was there for maybe a couple of months when we built the chicken coop with 40 hens and a wonderful vegetable garden. In that particular case, I did not ask for permission because I knew right off the bat, it was going to be not just snow, but heck no. And then after I wrote a paper explaining why we did what we did, So it's not so much the idea or the innovation that everybody gets stuck on the innovative idea. What they really need to focus on is the process and how do you get people to buy into that? And how do you sell that? The innovative idea is secondary to understanding how to get it done.
1: What I really like about this, Robert, is you didn't try to go from zero to 100 right away. You slowly built this up, you use the word trust, and you have to earn that trust. And by measuring what you're doing with the impact, then you're able to prove, it's not just social proof or emotional proof, of what you're doing and actually works. So getting these small wins, and I'm I'm sure over time, over the last five years, the more wins you had, the more validation you had, then the more trust you had earned, and then the bigger the initiatives you can roll out. Was that a phased strategic plan on, Mm -hmm. on your part also, to slowly roll it out over time? 100%
0: Colin people they still talk about the tiny house or the food truck and the beehives what people have to realize is that what they don't know is that their first year other than the chicken coop believe it or not our team's introduction of innovation was so benign that it's almost laughable I'll give you an idea we did not have music at the club Mm -hmm. right we did not have good outdoor seating I mean it sounds ridiculous talking about it now but we bought a Bows, speakers, and so we can pipe music indoors. We didn't have music indoors. We upgraded the outdoor seating with nice umbrellas. This is outdoor seating. We bought a cappuccino machine. You would think, how is that even innovative? It's not. <laughs> In the eyes of the beholder, all they know that this is something is different. It's changed. And we deliberately did this, including redoing our pool furniture, right? You would think, but it's pool furniture. What this was, was a very tangible and small way of gaining the trust of the membership in telling them, look, I'm looking out for you and I'm looking out for the brand. You have to trust me. Now, they're not going to trust me with the big stuff until they trust me with the little stuff. And that's what we did. So people automatically fast forward two years to all the other things. But what they fail to realize is all those incremental little steps that we took in order to win their trust. Because when you're dealing with a brand like Medina, contrary to popular belief, everyone thinks that it's easy for us or for me. Oh, it's easy for you because you've got the brand. Everybody knows who you are, Medina. What they don't realize is exponentially harder for me and my team to tweak the Medina brand because everybody knows it. And the consequences are exponentially greater for anyone else. So we did it very carefully, deliberately, incrementally, all the way, while educating our board and our membership as to not what we're doing, but why what you're doing, what we're doing.
1: I love the "why" there, and Robert, you and I have talked about this. You're familiar with Simon Sinek and and his famous TED Talk of "It's not what you do, but why you do it." The power of "why," and it sounds like you certainly embraced that and have made sure that the board certainly understands that that is the guiding principle of of what it is that you need to do so you can be consistent and stay on track. One thing I find very interesting here, you talked about the almost $30 million you put in on infrastructure change small things you kind of laugh at the fact that in hospitality you've been doing it for years but golf industry is a bit of a laggard so it seems obvious to do those things even though they haven't done them but they make a big difference I'd love to hear your thoughts on or the process you had then on that outreach program how did you change the messaging outbound for people that had never been to Medina or perhaps considering joining a club and then think Medina well Medina is this it's been this for a hundred years so it has that very traditional iconic view and they thin slice that and they think, well, it's not for me. How did you manage to change that in order to make Medina more welcoming, more inviting, more diverse to make more women, families, and ethnic diversity as far as the base of your membership as you've expanded to reach out to make everybody feel welcome at Medina?
0: So Colin, the good news is is that we were all of that to begin with. Mm. That's what was so both disheartening for me more than anything in that once I too had the misconceptions of Medina and I'm in the industry. And once I got to be part of the Medina community, it was very, very apparent to me that our job was not going to be as hard as I thought because Medina was already a very family-centric club. Medina already was a diverse club. Medina already was a very relationship-based club. And what was infuriating is that no one from the outside or very, very few from the outside world, outside of the gates, knew that. And by the way, Mm. entirely our fault, because the only thing we kept bragging about and the only thing we talked about is golf. We did not talk about our community. So the average person, they came through the gates, automatically had a misconception that we were a very, this is the typical words they would use. You're very Either high-end, uptight, rigid, stuck-up, right? And nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. Medina is not a very rigid, uptight culture. Actually, we are on the other side of the spectrum. We are very casual, very casual. So people are just absolutely blown away when they experience that. And I am proud of that. We have such an incredible diverse membership. From all over our races, we have a robust women's program, robust kids program, men's programs. So for what I what we decided to do was, number one, immediately we have to grab the market's attention. And if you do anything with golf and Medina, it may or may not get your attention because it's expected. This is predominantly why we created the chicken coop. As crazy mm. as it was to build a chicken coop with 40 hands for fresh eggs. And we did that for a reason. What I wanted to do was how do I get the attention of the marketplace that we are embarking on something different, on something new that would capture everyone's attention. Now, if you do anything golf related, it's not going to make a dent. But I knew that if I did something to demonstrate to both the external community and to prospective members some sort of tangible evidence of our belief system that is community, that we care about nutrition, we care about community. And to me, a chicken coop is something that symbolizes that. I mean, it's really about sustainability. It's about something you find in communities that's raw and it just speaks community, and we built it. And that chicken coop became part of our script. It sure as heck caught the attention of the marketplace for sure. For sure. We were written up in a lot of publications, industry magazines. To this day, as you and I are talking, five years later, we're still talking about the chicken coop as a symbol of innovation. And what we did is that chicken coop, which was very inexpensive, uh, and by the way, had a story, was built with bricks from our old chimney that we had. All of the siding was from leftover wood from the Ryder Cup. And all of the eggs are used for breakfast on the buffet. And that chicken coop was in the script when prospective members came to visit, we would talk and show them. And we used the chicken coop at that time as tangible evidence that our belief system is very much in alignment with yours as prospective members. And we were specifically talking to the wife and the spouse. Because again, remember the men, they're sold, but they cannot write the check without their partner nodding their head as well. Mm-hmm. So we wrote scripts. We started with the gate. We don't no longer just turn anybody away to say, excuse me, this is a private club you can't come in. We say, how can we help you? Well, I'm looking, I'm interested. No problem. Please come on in. We call our director of member development. And what we do is we're a welcoming community. We don't turn people at the gates for no reason. We want people to understand what Medina is. We want you to come in so we can talk. We are more welcoming in that fashion. And we developed marketing messages, either through LinkedIn, through our industry publications, and through TV, that we are different from what most people think. But that was deliberate on our website. Uh, we instituted a CRM system, which we would never had before, so we can follow up. Our messaging is very different. Our director of communications, Donson Duffner, is extraordinary when it comes to messaging and creating narratives and telling stories across the web. So, again, all of this is very deliberate to reflect uh, our value system. And then it grew from there. We built four tennis courts, a four-paddle racket center because, you know, we wanted the people to be more engaged in the winter. We fixed our swimming pool, our decks, because we know the moms and the kids play a big role. So we did that. And we started making these investments. Again, with an attempt to have something for the entire family year round. So what you're revealing
1: here is the power of authentic storytelling. You've been in marketing and business long enough that you know that your brand is not what you tell people, is what people are saying when you're not in the room. And it sounds like what what people were saying not in the room for decades were not what you were thinking they were saying, especially people that weren't members. So the fact you've made that transformation and made it more welcoming and inviting. And one story I'd to segue with that that I'd love for you to share with us, Robert, is one that you shared with me on an earlier call is when people first walk in non-members into the club and they come into the clubhouse and that space, in the clubhouse, that iconic clubhouse is massive and almost with a sense of reverence and it's so large. You can talk about that because that was sending off the wrong vibe, wasn't it? You managed to, or you have changed the feel of that space now to make it more welcoming and inviting. So can you tell us that story of how it intimidated people before and now it makes them feel welcome when they sure. first walk into the club?
0: So, Colin, and uh, again, people underestimate that in our clubs, there are symbols all across our clubs and our grounds that illustrate either something positive or negative. And we're just not tuned into that. And for me, I'm very cautious and observant of all the cues around that kind of speak about who we are. While we are blessed with hundred over 100,000 plus clubhouse built in the early 20s, and the Shriners who originally founded the club and built it were a little bit eccentric, right? Wonderful individuals. And that part is still in our, in our DNA today. And they had an architect build the clubhouse in three distinctive architectures. We have the Rotunda is a Middle Eastern. If you come inside Madonna and right in the entryway, you will see a massive dome that would look like a mosque. Straightforward, forward, you'll find another room that looks very Italian, right from that period, and then a ballroom is French with an incredible murals that have a completely different feel. But the most problematic to me was the entrance. So what I found out and I observed very quickly is that when every time a member or a specifically guest walked through the front door. They were greeted to the side by a little window where you had to slide the glass open. And what happens is they also started to whisper because it was quiet. So the space immediately forced people to whisper. And they were greeted in a very unwelcoming kind of way through a little uh, glass window. The last thing you want in a welcoming, thriving community where you want people to feel relaxed is for them to whisper. It's not a library and it's not a church or a mosque right? It is the entrance to our home. So how do we combat that? We immediately created a welcoming concierge desk on the outside. So now when somebody sees you, they'll wave at you. You'll immediately see someone welcoming you. We also put music in the entrance. So now when you walk in, there will be music. And what the music does, it gives you permission to speak a little louder because if we wanted silence, we wouldn't have music there. And these are the little things that we did to soften up the space to make it more welcoming. All of our dining areas, our beverage areas are redone to feel more of a community feel with softer surfaces. All of this was designed deliberately to foster a sense of community. Now, I'll give you another example that it doesn't take much to send a message or a signal of of your belief system. Last fall... We were membership director, was working with a family who wanted to join, was unsure. It was the spouse was very unsure about joining. And I don't want to exaggerate, but I think they were thinking about this for months on end. And then Doug, our director of member development, told me that you won't believe it. They're going to join. I said, wow. I said, what happened? What changed their mind? He says, again, you're not going to believe this. Robert, he said, it was our birth sign that I put up, he said. And he said, all he did is, we have an area where it was a nesting bird, and the bird was attacking members and guests. So Doug put up a sign that said, be mindful, birds are nesting. And the prospective member's wife came in and saw that sign. And she said to her husband, this is her husband telling the story. She said, we're in. If they care about the bird this much, I can only imagine how much they care about their members. Colin, wow. one uh, sign made a difference. I-
1: all, all these examples you've just cited have nothing to do with technology none of them are technology led they're about observing listening and even experimenting in some cases and I'm sure you've had examples things that you've tried and you have the trust of the board now that maybe didn't work out so you do a little less of that and a little more right. of that so in a way you're you're treating it like a startup in a sense to to reboot the cultural transformation at Medina would that be fair to
0: say <laughs> So, Colin, in any industry, especially in our industry, one has to have an entrepreneurial mindset. But the challenge is this: in most clubs, it's not that my fellow club managers lack imagination, innovation. I can tell you, they are pretty bright folks. It's through no fault of their own. The challenge is, is that we work in an environment where we change boards very frequently, presidents every year, two years, and the fear. The fear of failure in most clubs is so high that it prevents the management team from experimenting and innovating because the tolerance for failure is very small. And fortunately for us at Medina, we have educated and we have the support of the board in that I have a pretty large safety net. So for as many ideas we have tried that have succeeded, equal amount have failed. But you know what? It's okay. It's okay. We want our team and our employees to think outside the box, because, again, just like I have a safety net, I provide them with a safety net as well. That's the only way. But again, we work really hard on the trust. We work really hard on demonstrating that everything we do is consistent and a betterment for our brand. I would never do anything to jeopardize the Medina brand. As a non-golfer or golfer, that's irrelevant. I appreciate the brand of Medina and the people that work there, the people that are members there. It has nothing to do with golf. It has to do about being protective of the community for which the brand stands for.
1: Great insights there, Robert. Thank you for that. And you did touch on staff. So I do want to talk about the transformation there. You talk about the why and your mission as part of that cultural transformation. It's not only within the membership existing and new but also within the staff because you're going to have some staff that may also have that feeling of whether it's complacency or you know that's just the way we do it or i resist change and some humans are just built that way how over the last five years have you managed to get the buy-in and earn the trust to get them to project forward because they are part just like you upgrade your pools and your patio furniture you In a way, you have to upgrade the mindset of the staff to make them project that upbeat, welcoming, friendly, consistent message too, to all the guests. And if that falls down, then it doesn't matter how much money you spend on infrastructure, you're not going to succeed. So perhaps you can talk a bit about how you manage to then transform the culture within the staff.
0: Agree. Absent of a employee culture providing an exceptional, personalized member service, all you have is brick and mortar. That's it. While Medina has a wonderful reputation and a wonderful brand, it's not the bricks and mortar that made Medina the success that it is today. It is the very people, the employees, with 200 and some in the off season and over 400 in season, many of whom have been at the club for many years, they... They are the one that make Medina the community that we are. They are. Absent of them, we don't have anything. We have just beautiful grounds. And one of the reasons why I'm a firm, firm believer in getting the employee culture right is that I don't care if it's innovation or strategy. The only people that will make that strategy an operational reality is the people you work with. Mm Mm-hmm. Absent of understanding and getting your employee culture where it should be, it is futile. Again, this is another reason why a lot of innovation fails because everybody is so excited about introducing new ideas, innovation, right? And they just come to be out there. They're so excited by their very innovation that they forget. They forget whatever the innovative idea, business model, product, at the end of the day, it will only take place because the people that have to either deliver it make it, market it, are on board and fully understand and are engaged in what you're doing. So my first year, we conducted three employee engagements, and I do this at every club, to get a sense of what is the employee satisfaction level. And of course, it wasn't great. We've had huge turnover in leadership, GMs at Medina. I mean, too many to be proud of. So that, in essence, has scarred the staff. And having done this nine times, I know how important it is to come in and just listen. And when you take over an organization that has been stressed, scarred, harmed, where there's a void of trust, leadership, you can't get people to follow until they believe in you first. So what we do is we take care of them. We'll listen to them. We want to improve the employee culture. We immediately worked on developing a culture team. We decreased our employee turnover from the high 30s or low 40 percent to now we are in under 17 or 18 percent. We make our employee engagement scores as part of our balanced scorecard bonus package that in that our membership have to be happy. Our staff has to be happy. We have to have good financials and we have to accomplish our goals in order for us to be successful and get our bonuses. So we have to focus on the employee culture. To me, single handedly is the most important aspect of my job is focusing on my team and the people that I've been entrusted. I've been entrusted to lead them. I wasn't put there to spend 30 million dollars. I frankly, I don't really care about what we built because 10 years from now, no one's going to give a damn who built what, right? No one's going to give me credit. No one's going to give anybody credit on that. That's why I don't really care about the bricks and motor. What I do care about is spending time improving the lives of the people that I'm entrusted to lead that they will remember. They're not going to care about the deck or the racket center. So to me, I'm very passionate about employee culture and improving the lives of the people I'm entrusted to lead.
1: I can just hear it in your voice that you authentically, truly embrace that and so that just resonates throughout the club with staff and and the members. So you, you talked about a scorecard there. So that made my mind think about some numbers here. So we talked a lot about the emotional qualitative side of transformation. Can you talk about the last four or five years as far as where membership was before and where it is now, even with a waiting list? You know, talk about that as far as sure. kind of the the growth that you've had that's backed up and reinforced these initiatives that you put into place are, in fact,
0: working. I have to tell you, I'm very proud in that these initiatives have worked and are continuing to work. In the last four years, we have brought on over 350 new members. We are one short of our full membership cap. However, which is even more striking, is that we do have a waiting list for 39-year-old associate members. Mm. So in the last four years, our biggest influx of new members has been younger members. The average age of our new members is 43 years old. Think about that. We are making a, the biggest impact on the demographic you want the most. Yes. Right? So we have over a 1,000 members. This is the best membership members we have had since who knows when our attrition during COVID has been minimal. Only nine members, nine members resigned because of either business or personal reasons. But meanwhile, we've had a massive influx of requests. We have over 29 members that are in the pipeline to join during COVID. And again, to us, it's not a surprise because we were very deliberate throughout this whole COVID process is how I and the board communicated not only to our members, but how we communicated to our prospective members. Now, what we didn't do with our prospective members, well, sure, we talked about safety, all the protocols with our membership. But what we talked about more than anything was about the value of being a Medina member and the role that this community plays now and even more so in your life and your family in the future. And we drilled this home to our prospective members. We could have talked to them about safety and COVID and we use alcohol at 70% and masks. But, you know, I think members, prospective members get that message all the time. And no one's going to write an $85,000 check to join Medina because you're using proper cleaning solutions. Right. That's not how this works. So what we did is we wrote the narrative for our prospective members to reemphasize, double down, double down on the community value proposition and tell them that basically now more than ever. Now more than ever, when you can't go to games, movie theaters, Little League, now more than ever, you will be void of relationships in that intimate environment where you can develop relationships with your friends. What better place to do it than in a club like Medina, where we live and breathe this community and relationship stuff? Oh, and by the way, we just happen to have three world championship golf courses, state of the art learning center, a great pool, a lodge for shooting. Those are all by the way. We start with community and then we add the rest. And I think because we double down on our community value proposition and the role that clubs will play now, and even more so, that's how I think we were able to attract so many more members. Because as you and I know, it's all about the intimacy of with others that creates that sense of belonging. As I've told to many of our golf-centric members who keep saying, it's all about course three, course three. And when I ask the question, if all your friends left for whatever reason and you were here alone, would you play course three as much as you're playing it now? And the answer is always, Robert, there's no way I wouldn't. I'm not sure if I'd be here. And this is how I try to illustrate the point that you think you're here because of the courses. You're not. They may have been the initial reason why you inquired. You may have joined because of course three and what we had. But you're here because of your friends and the way we make you feel. And a lot of folks have a hard time understanding that. And I think they're coming around to understanding that the true value of private clubs, it's not the stuff we build. It's the relationships we form and how the staff makes you feel when you get here.
1: Amazing. I could... I have lots more questions to ask you, but I'm going to hold to that, Robert, because you and I, after we finish up here on the podcast episode here, we are going to jump on a Zoom call and we're going to do a quick video interview that we will then post on our Golf podcast YouTube channel which we do. And so there'll be some additional content. There some different questions kind of expanded from what we're talking about, because I did want to dig in a little more about how you've managed to survive and thrive during COVID. And some other things I want to talk about also, as far as your upcoming keynote talk at the World Golf Expo 2021, which is in March, I believe. So that And that's in Hainan in, uh, in Hainan, China, yeah. I believe. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. And for now, it sounds like that is going to be a go, that you're physically going to be there for that rather than having a virtual event. Is that the hope?
0: That is correct. Looking forward to it. It's a great place. I've been there before. Uh, Wonderful spot.
1: Well, fingers crossed that with the way the world is right now when we're recording this episode, that it all works out well, that you can get on a plane safely and you can go there. Sounds like everything they're going to be doing there at that World Golf Expo would be very well aligned with what I'm doing. So perhaps I'll talk to some of my people, and who knows, maybe I'll end up meeting you there. And if not, uh, <laughs> I would love to meet you. I'm up in Canada here. I would have to be quarantined once I come back the way things are right now. But I would love to visit you in person, uh, just outside of Chicago, there in Medina, one day very soon. I think that would be fantastic. I, I just love your approach, what you've shared with us here today, and so for all entrepreneurs and listeners out there, what Robert has. Best- bestowed upon us here as far as to make real authentic change. You have to earn trust and you do that by listening and observing rather than just trying to force your ideas upon people and your assumptions. And that has come through loud and clear and consistently here today, Robert. And I thank you for sharing that and everything else that you provided here today. So before we go here, is there anything you'd like to to share? So sounds like you've got a waiting list now. I know you don't have to actually do a a sales pitch for Medina. Sounds like you're doing very, very well, but perhaps you've managed to distill this down. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Do you have a tagline? now for what it is, the why of what Medina represents and what your why is. Perhaps you could provide that for us here.
0: Yeah, we do. We basically say that we are a welcoming, thriving community of like-minded individuals that offer world-class amenities, including uh, championship golf, but it's all about community.
1: Wow, it's, it's like you've said that before, that you've actually thought this through or something. <laughs> there you have it. There you have it. Alright, well, Robert Serecci, General Manager and Chief Operating Officer of Medina Country Club, just outside of Chicago. Robert, this has been amazing. This is right in the wheelhouse of what we love to talk about on the podcast. I mentioned earlier at the beginning, the top of the show, that we talked to the influencers, disruptors, entrepreneurs, and influencers that are shaping the future of golf, and I think uh, you get the uh, Quadruple Crown Award today, because you meet all four of those requirements today so well done sir thank you very much it's been a pleasure robert thanks so much and i look forward to talking to you again very soon have a great day and take care thank you so much so that's a wrap for this episode of the mod golf podcast i hope you enjoyed my conversation with robert sir who is a golf innovation keynote speaker and the general manager chief operating officer of medina country club if you'd like to learn more about robert visit our episode show page where we've included website links and additional content Speaking of additional content, I invite you to check out the bonus Zoom video interview Robert and I recorded that is posted on the Mod Golf Podcast YouTube channel. The video link is also on our episode page, and please subscribe to our YouTube channel while you're there. If you leave a comment, I promise to get back to you. I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor partners, Golf Genius Software and British Columbia Golf, for helping me make the Mod Golf Podcast happen. Without their support, I wouldn't be able to bring you these engaging stories from golf's brightest innovators and influencers. If you enjoyed this conversation about entrepreneurship in the golf industry, you can find more compelling episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you'd like to listen in. I'm your host, Colin Weston. Thanks very much for joining me. Bye for now.